Hey everyone, in this week's episode, we got a chance to speak with the prolific Canadian business journalist, the wonderful Amanda Lang, uh, currently an anchor with BNN and soon to be BNN Bloomberg. We spoke with her about her upbringing in Manitoba and how she came from a big family. Uh, we also talked about how she uh, got her start in journalism and how she did not take a traditional career path to being a journalist. Uh, we also touched upon her books, uh, The Power of Why and The Beauty of Discomfort, both of which are amazing. Amanda was an incredible guest. It really was such a joy chatting with her and admittedly somewhat intimidating to interview someone who is often conducting the interviews herself. Uh, so without further ado, here is our interview with Amanda Lang. So Amanda and I met a few months back now at Queens where she was uh, doing a TED Talk which uh, you were amazing, by the way. That so was, were you. Uh, <laughs> you were also doing a TED well, Talk. TEDx, we Yes, say. TEDx Queens U. Um, and I, I got to see uh, what you're currently working on, some of your current thoughts through the talk and then also through your book. Um, but kind of want to understand the path to how you got there. Sure. So, so Manitoba. Tell me about Manitoba. So Manitoba was a, the place I grew up. But it's funny because when I talk to people about where I'm from, I can name actually five places and they think I'm kind of, scamming a little bit uh, because my a big chunk of my family are, were Haligonians and Newfoundlanders and so there's a big deep history there um, but by the time uh, my mother and father were being born Saskatchewan was where they lived and were raised and in fact my dad uh, entered politics as a member uh, from Saskatchewan uh, in Pierre Trudeau's cabinet and so um, most of my seven siblings, six siblings, uh, five of them in fact, were born in Saskatchewan. But my twin sister and I, just by, by dint of the timing of the year, dad was sitting in the house, we were in Ottawa. So I was born in Ottawa, I can claim that too. Uh, now if you're counting, <laughs> that's four. Uh, dad lost his seat when I was nine years old. And he had been a law professor, a dean of law in fact, a very young cabinet minister, and now he was unemployed. But he had done a lot in the agricultural sector as Minister of Transportation and for the Wheat Board in government. And one of the jobs he was offered was with a grain company, Richardson's Grain, in Winnipeg. And he took it and he moved his family out there. And I was young enough, nine years old, I stayed through university that Winnipeg really became home. Of course, since then, Toronto has been home uh, for a long time. But Winnipeg is the real formative place for me, for sure. What's it like growing up with a dad who's in politics. And that's got to be pretty interesting upbringing. Yeah, I mean, of course, I don't know anything else because he was, I was born in 1970. Uh, Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister and dad was a cabinet minister. Uh, and in 1979, when Pierre Trudeau lost his, his seat in the election and therefore the leadership, I remember thinking somebody else can be prime minister. It was just like, I didn't know anything but this. Having said that, I can reflect on and compare to other people uh, when you grow up in a bit of a fishbowl, you get a very strong sense of inside versus outside. What you share and what is public. Uh, what is private and what you keep close. It's all kind of uh, very clearly delineated. One thing that we didn't do in my family was um, trash each other. We Because he was the candidate, we were super loyal, right? You can never say anything bad about dad. Uh, and that kind of trickles back into even inside the house, right? You get this kind of sense of, we're a team, and so in the team, we're, we're all in this together. Uh, it did create a bit of shyness on my part. I'm a natural introvert, 
and it played into that a little bit because there was stuff that you had to do as the child of a campaigning minister, right? I was knocking on doors when I was seven, uh, like it or not. Uh, so and your father had you work in... Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, work. getting campaign volunteers is tough Amazing. business. We were out there wearing... We used to have... There were... Mom had seven kids in six years, and so we were... You can imagine, like, a little tiny army, and we had these T-shirts that said the Lang Gang, and we would run around knocking on doors and trying to win people over with the cute factor, I guess. I certainly wasn't giving good policy debate at the door, I can tell you that much. But you learn a lot. You learn a lot about the process. Uh, one thing I will say I learned is it's not easy and it's not fun, and there are huge sacrifices in public office. So when people since then have said, you know, would you ever run, it's always been a really easy answer for me. Mm. And you said that, you mentioned that you're a natural introvert. Mm -hmm. How did you know that you were a natural introvert? And Because that seems like an, an odd thing. I'm sure you get this all the time whenever you say that. It seems like an odd thing for a news anchor to say. Um, but how did you know that you were a natural introvert? And then how did you overcome that, I guess, you know, starting at seven? So I always felt shy. I would have said I was shy. Uh, and I have an identical twin sister. And I always would have identified her as gregarious. And those were the kind of, in the family and in our worlds, everybody understood us that way. And uh, so in high school, for instance, when social groups mattered, I kind of trailed after her. She sort of forged the way and was the leader of the pack. And I just kind of hidden her coattails mm -hmm. because I didn't have kind of this big personality like she did. And then when I fell into journalism, which was sort of an accident, I realized that journalism is full of tools for shy people. Really, really good tools. If you're shy and you've got to go to a party, just ask questions. Ask questions about the other person. It's awesome. Everybody has something to say. Everybody likes to talk about themselves. It's inherently interesting. Uh, and so I kind of developed this set of skills and an ability to turn the lens away from me, which is actually a really helpful tool when you're trying to report on something else, not making yourself part of the story is actually good. Um, and then as I got older and really understood what I am, it's not shy, actually. It, my level of introversion is the kind that derives its energy from being alone. So I can be with people and love it and enjoy it, but then I need a break. So if a, after a big timeout or a big day or a big thing, I need to go, I need an hour by my, and I mean by my, I don't mean with my friends or family, I mean by myself with a book or you know running or something. And that's how I recharge. So I think that's a really interesting point because I think that uh, people often use being an introvert as, as a crutch to avoid interaction when really it's, it's not a matter of not liking people or not wanting to interact or connect. It's, it's where you derive your energy from. So how long did it take for you to notice that? A really long time. And in fact, the way I noticed it, which is sometimes how our best interpersonal relationships work, was with my twin. Because when we were in our 30s, we were having a conversation. It was when handheld devices, then Blackberries, uh, started to become a regular part of our lives. She was explaining that she so hates to be alone that when she's traveling or something and she's at a table, she's now so happy to have her Blackberry there because it gives her something to do. And in this conversation with her, I realized we're so opposite in that way because I don't mind that time alone. You know, other than, you know, you might feel funny sitting by yourself in a restaurant, but sitting by myself, is actually can be a pleasure. And so we were talking through it and I realized she needs other people. That's her source of energy and recharge. And it was the polar opposite of me. And she was the closest person on the planet to me at that time uh, until I had a child. She, she remained that. And it was just interesting that you can be so close, similar in so many ways, and yet this fundamental thing about you. And so since then I've talked to people, some people are all one, all the other. I'm a pretty d dedicated introvert. And you meet dedicated extroverts, like my twin or my husband. 
But there are lots of people who are in the middle. Sometimes they get energy from people, sometimes they get energy from themselves. Maybe we'll call them the normal ones, but there are those who are kind of a mix of the two. So it's not all one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's a podcast I listened to, uh, Esther Perel. I don't know if you know who, who that is. Uh, she's like a, a psychologist, a relationship psychologist. And she said something interesting um, that there are two things that you can't change about someone when going into a relationship. One is uh, whether they're an introvert or an extrovert. And the other is whether they're a morning person or a night person. And she said the, the majority of the people who come into her, her office or who see her, their problems like align somehow it can kind of feed back into that. That's really interesting. Like so the person trying to change the other for one of those two concepts. Yeah. Um, so you said that your husband's an, an extrovert. So how do you like, out of curiosity, like, how, like does that ever cause a rift? Or like how, how do you, like how does he, do you understand that you need you know, an hour alone or what does that so look like? So what's interesting is um, I feel really lucky that I that my twin Adrian has these this quality because I adored her all my life and came to understand her and appreciate and accept her differences. We weren't always the same. She wanted things a, a way I didn't in times I didn't. And so then uh, where I feel lucky is Jeff, who's exact. He's much more like Adrian than like me. They are classic. He wants people around all the time. He once invited me away on a romantic weekend and then invited friends to come with us. I had to call them and say, you're not invited. It's supposed to be a getaway for, the, for a couple. He doesn't understand that. Um, and it's not because he's not romantic. It's just that he, the more the better, right? It, yeah. People are good for him. The world is full of friendly people, and he wants to meet all of them. Uh, and if I didn't understand that and love it already at a real visceral level, I might be repelled by it. Uh, I see it as a beautiful thing, and I see it as unthreatening. He can be that way, and I can be my way, and it's totally fine. And I, I guess that comes with the beauty of being in a coming from a, a, a big family. Mm -hmm. So you have five siblings? Six? There are six of us now in total. There were seven. My eldest sister died. Oh, I'm sorry But there that. were six of us. So, yeah. so big family growing up. Yeah. So all different types of personalities? Oh, yes. You learn how to interact with all those different... And how much does that lend to you being a successful you know, news anchor today where you're you know, interviewing and speaking with a number of different personalities? I mean, I think... So we had... Mom had seven kids in six years. So because she got twins, so she kind of cheated a bit. So we were so all close in age, super tight, super, um, we played together, we, we, we were each other's friends, uh, but also combative and it, just stuff like learning how to speak up, uh, speak, we used to say, say it fast and say it loud or you won't get hurt at all at the dinner table. So there was a bit of that, which maybe set me up for a relationship with Kevin O'Leary in my later professional life. Um, but uh, big was always better, More that, that kind of fun. And again, for an introvert, that wasn't about a big crowd. That was my crowd, right? Those were my people. And that's something I still have. There's still people I want to be around who are tight and close and inside the circle. Mm, very interesting. So you accidentally got into journalism. Yeah. Um, what was that like? How did you accidentally get into there? So I trained as an architect. My um, undergrad degree is as an architect. Uh, because I decided when I was about nine that that's what I wanted to do. And I never wavered. I was driven for that. I did everything I needed to do in high school to get into the program. To, but by the end of that program or somewhere through it, I knew I wasn't going to be a good architect. Uh, the nice thing about that program is when you're doing it, you know if you're good or not. Because unlike, say, law, where a lot of it's theoretical and the practice comes later, in architecture you're doing design half the time. And if your designs aren't good, you can see it and your grades reflect it. And it was hard for me because I'm used to trying a little harder and then getting what I want. Uh, and in this case, there was none of that. There was no fuel for the extra creativity because it's just not in me. So I did the, got the degree, took a year off, 
deferred my master's. I was going to go get a master's of architecture. I was still in some denial about this problem. And in that year, I just I needed a job because I was living in my mother's basement and I was 21. And I went to a headhunter and they put me at the Globe and Mail as a kind of a receptionist. And while I was there, journalism occurred to me for the first time. It never had. So you still, you, like at what point did you let go of, of architecture? Sometime during that year, I started writing little freelance pieces for, um, for mainly for the magazine, Report on Business magazine. And the first time I wrote one, it was just a little blurb. I could probably bang it out in 10 minutes right now. I toiled over this thing all night, right? Because I didn't really know what I was doing. But as hard as it was, and as stressed as it was to get it right, a light bulb went off where I thought, this is how it feels to work hard at something you could be good at, rather than work hard at something you have got no shot at, which I just spent three years doing. So it was then that I sort of thought, this is what I should be pursuing. Can I pick into that? For, so yeah. how did you know that you were good at that versus, aside from the design. grading, yeah, the design, aside from the grade that you got that, that reflected that, how did you know you weren't as good as that? So that? this is, I actually think this is really important for young people. And when I talk to young people, I, I like to tell this story, uh, and I like to tell it for this reason. Nobody ever asked me why I wanted to be an architect until I was something like 40 years old. Because it was, a, it was a nice story. My parents liked how it sounded. My teachers liked it. I was a woman going into a male-dominated profession. It was all good. And then when I was 40, I met Jack Diamond, world-famous architect. And we were having lunch. And he said, uh, why architecture? And I told the true story. When I was nine, I had this hobby. And... I used to draw buildings, and I would draw, I like to draw one thing and make it another. So I would draw a barn, but it was going to be a school, or I would draw a church, but make it somebody's house. And then I would put people in it, like label the rooms. I was drawing these buildings in plan view from above. And as I'm describing this hobby to Jack, something I did all through my teen years, I realized that never once in all the times I did this did I draw the outside of the buildings. And I didn't really care about the spaces. What I was really doing was creating a place to tell people's stories. So. If somebody had asked me when I was 12 what led you to architecture and I, and I described this, they might have pointed me to a social science. They might have said journalism, psychology, maybe even nursing for heaven's sakes, I can't stand the sight of blood, but not pure design because the pure design was the last thing I was paying attention to. So when I talk to young people, I have to say the thing you think you want to do, the, the career goal you're pursuing right now, or even the career you're already in, the job you're in right now, if it's not giving you joy, it's because you're not using your talents properly. You know what your talents are. You know because you've always been good at that, and when you're doing it, it feels fun. So when I was working on this piece, I'd always been good at English. Reading, writing. You know, when I told this story to my best friend, who's been friends with me since I was 11, she said, I always thought architecture was weird. Because in high school, you wrote short stories, and you loved English, and you know, it just seemed like that was going to be your path. But who was I to say? And I said, you should have said. <laughs> you yeah. saved me all those years. But... I do think it's worth passing on the knowledge that we sometimes do pursue things. If you're in the law and you don't like the law, get the hell out of the law. And by the way, not just because you should be happy, you're probably not a good lawyer. If you're not happy, you're going to be a bad lawyer because it means your skills aren't being used. You saw that change where you were like, oh, I'm, I'm happy. This is what like happened. Was that it or was it like, oh, I'm good? Or what was the, the click that happened? It wasn't, I didn't know I was going to be good. It was more a realization that I, it was something I could try at and not fail, that there was a potential there. And I still didn't know if I would have a career. So what happened is that I decided, while I was working at the Globe and doing these little freelance jobs, uh, I would go to Ryerson and get a master's in journalism instead of architecture. And 
Well, I was kind of deciding whether I should do that. It just so happened that one of my first mentors in life, um, who happened at one point to be a Ryerson prof, Stephen Petherbridge, was at the Globe producing, he was there to produce a monthly newspaper. And he said, for high schools and universities, called the Classroom Edition. And he said, don't go to Ryerson, come work with me. You'll be doing some grunt work, but I can show you how to edit and, and you can write some stuff and you'll learn more. And so I did, and he was right. And in a year when he got promoted to a bigger job, I took over as editor. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was a small job. I was basically repurposing Globe material for this monthly paper. But I learned a ton, and I did write. Uh, and it was enough that, I want to say two years later, when the Financial Post was hiring an uh, entry-level reporter, they gave me the job. And that was sort of the beginning. And that's where I fell in love with business journalism, too, by the way. That wasn't a kind of a preordained path. That was the job that opened, that was available. Um, but I've always loved business because of the way into the stories, right? For the readers. Mm. I, it, your path almost would have made more sense if you went and did like politics or like reporting on politics or something. So you said like the, the numbers are what made it interesting for you. Um, how did you know that? Like, what was the. So just by chance, um, when I was pitching stories and freelancing at the, at the Globe, one of the editors that I knew was the editor of the magazine, David Olive. And I remember standing one day, and I was thinking of stories to pitch, right, because I wanted to freelance and I wanted to do more. Um, and he'd been receptive, but I hadn't had a great idea yet. And I was reading the Globe in the library, because that's where you read the paper then, on those big wooden dowels, right? <laughs> Kids listening are like, what? Anyway, the paper used to be printed. Uh, and I was reading the report on business, and they were, there was a, a small story about Bombardier's earnings. And I just noticed, just in passing, that while its profit was massive, or sorry, its revenue was massive, it, it, it makes billions and billions in sales on, as you know, planes, trains. Its profit was relatively small. So I thought, what's the point in having billions and billions of sales if it doesn't translate into that much profit? Like, what's happening here? And so when I dug into it a little bit, I saw that on a margin basis, the place it still made good dollar sale to profit margin was on the old snowmobile division. That was the division that the, the grandfather who founded the company had started. And so they'd taken this amazingly profitable business and said, well, let's get bigger in a bunch of other stuff, which has razor thin margins. And here was still the beating heart of this company in this tiny little Quebec town. And it kind of raised interesting issues, right? Is bigger always better? Should you leave well enough alone and make more, more dollar profit per sales? Anyway, I pitched the story, and he liked it. But what it taught me forever was numbers aren't something to be afraid of. They're actually a, a clue or a key, right? So, and that's something I've tried to pass on to producers ever since who are relatively new to business. Don't be afraid of it. But when you see that Pepsi's sales went up but profit went down, that's a story. Go find out what it is because there's something there that's a disconnect. It's, it's not logical, so let's go tell that story. So was that Bombardier story the, the story that kind of swung your career in that direction? Was that the first one, or what was it? The, the, the that was the first big one. That was a that magazine was article. Okay. Um, it's funny, I don't, know, I don't know if I could find it today. I, I'm sure I have a clipping of it somewhere. I'm sure it was terrible. I mean, good enough to pass muster, but not what I was picturing in my head, right? But, but good enough, and probably good enough to get me that job at the Financial Post. So, so how many years until you're on, you're on TV? So I time? went to the Post, I want to say in 94, and in 1999 I was working for them in New York um, as the New York correspondent. And Steve Petherbridge, that the guy who said, don't go back to Ryerson, mm -hmm. he called me up and I was sitting in my office and we were just shooting the breeze. And he said he was launching a channel with some partners 
uh, called uh, ROB TV, as it was then known. And uh, I said, you should hire me. You need a New York correspondent. I'm ready for a job change, but I'm not ready to leave the city. And he kind of laughed and said, you don't want to do TV, Amanda, because print people think TV people are stupid. And I said, well, I'm ready for a change, so try me. And so he put me in touch with one of his partners who was going to run the channel named Jack Fleischman. And I met Jack, and I did a screen test, and it was horrific. Like, I, again, I wish I had that tape, although I'd probably burn it after I laughed at it with friends. Um, but Jack saw something. He's, that was one of his, is one of his gifts. He could see if people will be good one day. Um, and so they put me on the air. My first day on the air was the first day uh, ROB TV launched in 1999. And it was fun. TV was fun. I had to relearn how to order information. It's different, right? Um, but being able to get off a conference call and say, this is what Larry Ellison just said, and this is why you need to care, it just felt really fun and important because nobody could get on that call. Now you can't. It's a little different now. But then I was just the conduit for information that investors didn't have any other way. What do you mean by re you have to reorder information? So in print, there's a kind of a, you know you have 16 paragraphs, first of all, so you can include a lot of stuff that you might not. And you can have a sort of, you can back your way into a story. You wouldn't put all of the most important details in the first four lines of a newspaper article. Whereas on television, that's what you do. You get on and you give the first four most important things that the person needs to know because television, they're not going to sit around and listen to you pontificate. Uh, and if you try to do that, you get into trouble. So it, I, I realized pretty quickly that what I learned about how to shape a story had to be very different for television. It happens fast. As I said, what was that learning curve? Like, how long did it take before? You said that your, your first audition or on-screen test was awful. I'm sure it was a lot better than that. But it, it, how did you go from that to being then, like, you know, good to great and now, you know? So the, I'll just gloss over the assumption that I'm great. Forever <laughs> God great. Uh, the screen test was me reading a prompter. And reading a prompter is hard, as anybody who's been thrown into it knows. That was the awful part. I think the reason he gave me a shot was because part of the test was just a live talk back. Somebody at the other end of a camera asking me questions and me answering. And when I have the information, which I did, I knew what I was talking about when it came to, especially technology stocks, because that had been my beat, uh, I could answer. And I could be normal and natural and not get all weird and stiff the way you do at the prompter. And so that worked. So that I wasn't afraid of. And I had, a, I had fun, tons of fun. My first day of television, by the way, I learned one of the most important lessons of television. Because the anchor who was in Toronto, who I'd never met, remember, I'm in New York, they're all in Toronto. I had come prepared to talk about three stocks. It's six in the morning, and I was going to talk about, I don't know, let's say, IBM, Yahoo, and Cisco. And I give my report, and I guess they had time to kill, because the anchor says, and what is it about PetSmart that was happening yesterday? Because I see it was down 18%. And I don't know anything about PetSmart. Yesterday, I worked at another job. I wasn't paying any attention. And... I realized something you never forget, which is, I don't know is not an okay answer. Dead air, not okay. <laughs> so even in television, when you don't know what to say, you have to say something. And it has to say something that's not going to destroy your credibility forever. Uh, it was a really valuable lesson, although I will say to this day, I hate that anchor. She's moved on, so I can say that. I don't even know where she is. But I, I've always felt, and I would never do that to somebody. I guess that's a, the third lesson I learned is when I'm dealing with a reporter, I would never throw something at them in a way that would catch them right off guard. It's so unfair. Obviously, there's a lot of differences between you know, writing and, and, and being on television. That being one of them, being able to think on your feet. But like, the, from the interaction standpoint, right? Like, how do you 
juggle all that information and then come back with you know something coherent and and something that makes sense? Like, how do you handle all that? I, I mean, I think uh, there are parts of that skill you can learn, and part of it is just comfort level uh, with the environment. So you relax enough to let your brain do what your brain can do. Um, I do think part of it take is a, is not innate, but some of my ability to think fast, talk fast, talk back, uh, debate was really learned at my childhood dining table. I mean, that loud was, and fast. It was loud and fast, and we debated endlessly, um, sometimes to the point of fears, uh, tears rather. Um, with one, one brother in particular, Gregory, uh, we could get boy if somebody was crying by the end of Christmas dinner. Um, but it was all about ideas. It wasn't anything personal. So I find. Uh, I find my brain actually just works that way. I like to take information in and, and shuffle it very quickly. Uh, it doesn't always work perfectly, and you can move too fast. But again, I think for most people, just relaxing uh, and letting your brain do what it knows how to do is the best secret. I was going to say, that, that is the easiest, sounds like easy advice, like, oh, it's so simple. But in the moment, to do that is very difficult. Yeah, people have different skills, right? Um, and, you know, maybe the greatest architect in the world doesn't have that skill. And, and we traded it off. Mm. Uh, but you know, I, I just think it's a. I think of it. Uh, I think of it like juggling. Like you wouldn't be super impressed if I could juggle, but that's really what it is. It's mental juggling. Uh, one of the other things, skills you acquire when you do television a long time, which does not make you a better person, is an ability to listen to someone talk to you and speak at the same time. Because often your producer's speaking in your ear, but you have to keep speaking. So just so you know. At a cocktail party, I can full-on listen to the people in the next conversational group while having a very direct conversation with you. <laughs> you may never know that that's what's happening. Uh, so you learn these funny, quirky skills when you do TV. Uh, but you do thinking on your feet. Live TV is actually the most fun you can have for that reason. I, I guess my, my next question then would be like, you obviously have, have been in this part of your career the longest. Yes. Right, this on, the, on TV. Um, Coming into and, and then choosing business, um, male-dominated industry. How did you find that initially coming in? Obviously, you have, you have brothers, like you mentioned, Gregory. So handling him, I'm sure, was a, a good way in. But now, even as a woman, you know, on in, in the business world and and interviewing these these men, um, was that intimidating at first? Was that challenging? Like, how, and how have you dealt with that? Yeah, I never really felt. Uh, never felt like a woman. It, that was never one of my the identifiers for me, including in architecture school, by the way, where in a class of 70, there were three women. It was never kind of the primary, I was the one getting C's. I wasn't a woman. Um, and so one of the benefits that I've always had um, in as a journalist, wherever I was, is that I didn't know what I was doing. I, I never, at, at any stage of my career, did I think, well, I should know this because I hadn't trained in it. I hadn't been doing it very long. I didn't have a business background. I was learning all the time. And so I didn't bring any chip on my shoulder. I brought like a genuine open curiosity. I needed to know this. If you have the information, I will take it. And that may actually be easier for, uh, for people to deal with in, and be less aggressive towards you. I don't know. But what I will say is I've thought about this because I've been, of course, asked this question many times, especially in the Me Too era. And I can honestly say uh, that I've never had an experience in Lockwood, and I feel fortunate, but I, I've never had an experience where my gender was the thing that mattered. I like that answer, that you never def identified as, as, as a woman in that sense. So then, how did you then decide to write The Power of Why? I had come home from um, the U.S. And while I was in New York, I uh, worked for CNN for a couple of years. And I uh, was there for 
and had a very strong sense um, and a pro-America view of that great country. I really love the U.S., if you can consider New York the U.S., but let's just say that it is. And was very aware when I came home of both Canada's amazing strengths and some of its weaknesses, uh, including that it doesn't actually capitalize on its best abilities. I think of it as kind of the former high school baseball star who's now 45 with a beer on the sofa talking about his glory days. Um, and you kind of want to shake them and go, what are you good at now? You've Canada still is Uncle these... Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, dude, you heard it here. But, you know, the, our country has so many good qualities, and yet we have weaknesses. And so one of the weaknesses that I, that I cared about, and this is what led me to the book, uh, was our productivity problem. Productivity is such a, now it's a blunt instrument, and people will argue um, forever about how it's measured, and is it a good way to measure it, and what does it mean? The reason I like it is that everybody measures it the same, if you're measuring it the same way, not everybody does, but you can for every country. And it's pretty clear when there's a trend. And our trend has been bad. And it's, a, it's kind of a measure of our collective wealth, right? How are we doing with the assets at our disposal? What are we producing with them? How effectively? And it's been a bad story. And I wanted to write about that. And publishers did not want me to write about it. They wanted me to write a book, but they didn't want that book because they thought it would be really boring. And also maybe a little anti-Canadian. Um, and then I realized one day that if I wrote about innovation, I was writing about the same thing because there are two sides of the same coin, right? Do one get the other? And so I started researching innovation. Publishers like that idea because innovation was the sexiest term of, this is 2010, I guess, and everybody wanted to talk about innovation. Uh, and as I looked into it, where I came was this super simple premise, like almost embarrassingly simple. This is not a big learned expose of innovation and how to get it. It's literally curiosity is all it takes to be as creative as you possibly can. But the reason I thought it was compelling is we have driven our own curiosity out of ourselves. We are natural born neurological functioning. We've actually damped it down and said, don't do that. And we say it to each other and we say it to our kids. And uh, I thought that was worth getting out and talking to people about because curiosity is the fuel that will make uh, our whole world better. Did you know this before deciding to write the book or is this something that you came to while researching and writing the book? It was something I came to while researching it uh, that led to the title. And then I, I learned a lot. When you write a book, you start with sort of a, well, I don't know how other people write books, but you start with a germ, an idea, enough concepts that you know there's something there but then you learn, 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 learn for 18 months or 12 months or however long you have for it before your deadline's up. And in that case, I learned so much about where this can take you and what next level curiosity looks like and where it went and why. And so that all became part of the process. But that one little, we had the name, the power of why before I'd written a single word. And, and the book is all about curiosity and, and kind of furthering our curiosity. And you mentioned that we, that we dampen it. Yes. Why do we dampen it? Like, how does that happen? It happens, and I found research uh, to this effect, it happens when we're toddlers. So if you've spent time with toddler, you know that uh, curiosity is natural, right? Why, 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 daddy? Why does this happen? And when we joke about it, and we, but we don't really like it, and we don't actually treat them well. And the, what the research showed is, in fact, most of the time how we respond to the, that incessant curiosity is basically by saying, get lost. And the reason we do that is because we we're once that age and we're treated that way. So we internalize at a really young age that curiosity is negative. 
is treated as a negative in school, for sure. It's unwelcome, it's seen as a distraction, a disruption. And then in work, it's often seen as um, obstinance, arrogance. The thing that I think is actually most powerful about curiosity, I cared about it when I was writing that book because of how it fuels innovation and how you can use it in groups for creativity. Curiosity is also, at its heart, wisdom. Because if, you're, if you remain open and curious, what you're really saying is, I don't know everything. And what I do think I know, I could be wrong about. And the most wise people that I've met, and the ones that you would think have all the answers, they have that almost childlike quality where they'll take any comer and say, why do you think that? They're, they're being challenged on something they are the world expert. And instead of saying, please go away, pipsqueak, Gloria Steinem, the great feminist of our era, uh, was here not long ago. I had the pleasure of meeting her and interviewing her. And the, if I had to name one curiosity about her, uh, one trait, it's her curiosity and her willingness to listen to what everybody has to say as though they know more than she does. And boy, I think that's a great quality. Yeah, it's, it's so true. It's so true. Like it, it's so nice having a conversation with somebody who, who asks questions yeah. versus gives you answers and just, and just speaks to hear. It's just very attractive quality. It's, 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 it's very endearing. It draws you in closer. It's it also keeps us from echo chambers, don't you think? It keeps mm. us from uh, shutting out other people's points of view. How could I be wrong? Is what, if I teach my son anything, I want it to be that. What if I'm not right about this thing I think is true? Mm. For, and I think there should be nothing on that list other than we should not murder one another that we don't challenge. Mm. You know, that we could be wrong about anything that we hold there. So you go from the, the, the why in the power of why, uh, and then you... you Turn that around and put on the how to, in, to, to write uh, The Beauty and Discomfort. So can you tell us about that and, and what made you kind of write that second piece? Yeah, because I really didn't intend to write a second book. I'm not, I didn't ever intend to write a book. I only did it because I thought it was important. Um, and then when it was done, that was great and I was happy to move on. I had nothing to prove, never had. And then I realized that there was a piece missing and that is if the whole point of your curiosity it's not just to sit around and ponder things, right? It's to actually ponder them in a constructive, directed way. Uh, it gets you to a place. It gets you to an answer. You arrive at a solution. You arrive at a suggestion for yourself. And what I realized is that even if you do that, even if we all do this well, we don't act on those answers. We do not like change to the extent that we keep from... We're immobilized, many of us, uh, in, in our work, in our home lives. And I got really curious about what that was about and started to research it. And the research led me uh, to this place that's a lot, there was a lot of neuroscience in it actually. At one point my editor said, you can't write a neuroscience book. You're not an expert in this. And I said, but it's so interesting. She was like, stop it. Um, but it ended up being really the story of people who have overcome or adapted. Because adaptation is actually gonna be the key, uh, in, in ch I think, in the change model. Um, once you get the thing you need, you have to actually adapt your thinking and your expectations and even your curiosity about it in order to make it happen. Yeah, because you, you, in both books, you really do a great job of, of, and this is what I found most interesting, is like they're kind of like little books within the book because you, you come up with these different stories that, that kind of you know, always relate back to your, your thesis and, and the common theme. Uh, I want to know like how, how much fun is it like talking to those people and learning about those stories so and coming fun. up with that? So fun. So, in fact, this is actually a, a good anecdote about the, how the world works in mysterious ways. The Power of Rye was almost finished. It was done. We were happy with it. 
uh, when a guy in New York published a book, I forget his name, I've blocked all this out because it was so unpleasant. He's a well-known writer who later got accused of plagiarism, but never mind. Um, but he published a book that used some of the same early childhood research that was in my book. And so my editor, um, the woman I was working with to put this book together, Kate Fillion, she said, we, we got to rip it up. This is not, we can't put any of that in. And this was a central to the book. And so in order to deliver a book a month later, which is six weeks later, which is what we had to do, um, I had to go out and find people with stories to tell. Those were the innovators. I went and found out the I found the saw stop guy. You know, you find all these people, and one thing I could do is is interview somebody and write their story because that is print. <laughs> I've been doing that for years and years, and that's fun. I love that. So, but that device of telling the story, it wasn't an originally planned thing. It was a serendipitous thing, built out of full burning platform necessity. But so then, by the time we got to D Beauty of Discomfort it was clear that that's something that works, especially with something as amorphous as change, because it, it means something so different to everybody else. Uh, so then, okay, I knew I wanted to go find people with stories to tell. Change was a harder subject. Innovators were easy, right? They're sort of inventors, people who've made cool things, who've found solutions. When you go, how do I find people who are good at change and discomfort? That was harder, it took longer. Some of it was very accidental. I met one of them on a plane, uh, on a red eye. Ray Zahab, the, the runner, wonderful man. But I was on a red eye and I sat down next to this man and he started talking to me and I thought, oh my God, it's a red eye, do not talk to me. I need to sleep, don't you? And it took me about a minute to realize this was gonna be one of the most fascinating conversations I'd ever had. And we talked the whole way and he became chapter two. Um, but it was just one of those weird sort of chance encounters where you talk to somebody and you realize. I have found that actually, if I let myself talk to people on planes, I almost always meet somebody fascinating. I should probably do it more. Yeah, it's a good good lesson. <laughs> but I'm an introvert. Staying, yeah, but staying curious is, is part of that. Yes. Like having different stories allows for like anyone to connect with it because everyone who's reading it is going to connect with at least one. If you're an athlete, you'll so, find yeah. the Tristan Thompson. Like, there's always these different stories. So, um, I thought that was a really really smart idea. Um, so you've like tr changed a lot from like wanting to be uh, an architect to then um, switching over to. Uh, writing and being a journalist and then getting on TV and then writing books um, that have, uh, the books have more of a bent on psychology and how to not live, but ways to um, develop a philosophy for living and, and whatnot. How many times have you been told to stay in your lane and to like not change? And, and how do you deal with that? Not until this minute. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. No one's ever, like, no. so like, no one's ever said like, oh, you, you shouldn't do this. It's like, you, you've always kind of surrounded yourself, I guess, with people who've been supportive and in that decision making? Yeah, I mean, I guess none of the things, certainly professionally, say in the last 15 years, um, I mean, definitely going from architecture to journalism is a bit random, uh, but there was nobody there saying I should have been an architect, believe me. Um, but none of the things I've done, even though the books ended up, you know, you could debate, you know, do, are they sort of self-helpy or are they business books? That I don't think anybody ever saw them as way off my field of expertise, uh, which I'm not terribly afraid of uh, of doing because I'm I'm not comfortable outside where I'm comfortable. Uh, even though I wrote a book about discomfort, don't mistake <laughs> me for somebody who's good at it. Um, I like I like being confident in, in where I am, and so I wouldn't have written a book that took me too far astray. I wouldn't have written a book about cooking, for instance, sure, uh, or architecture for that matter, um, because I, I kind of know what I know and why I know it, and I stay there. Now you're back here. You're you're in Toronto. Um, and you made a new career step, I guess, with, with 
being in. Um, can you talk to us about that and what that's like? Yeah, it's super exciting. Um, so the the most exciting thing is that BNN and Bloomberg are merging in Canada, and that is they're gonna the kind of official coming together uh, is very soon, and that creates a business powerhouse the likes of which no country has seen, uh, and it gives uh, kind of a global mentality to the Bloomberg, the New York-based Bloomberg entity, which they're seeking, which is very right for our journalists here across the Bell Network, that's a massive opportunity. And of course, for everybody here on radio, on digital, on television, you name it, there's, that is the biggest platform in the world. Tens of millions of desktops run Bloomberg. So accessing that and having a way, having the reach that that provides is enormous. So to be part of that, it was an absolute treat. To come back to BNN, as I knew it, ROB TV, uh, it's a bunch of familiar faces who I've respected for 15 years. You know, I was sad to leave. I didn't leave because I wanted to leave this place. I left because I wanted to do something that was going to be hard to do here. Uh, so I needed to go to a different organization who saw me slightly differently. Um, was so happy to be back. But at this time in its history, this is a really interesting experiment because lots, lots is going to change about cable, about broadcasting, about... Uh, it's, so digital is where you want to live, and this is a combined. This is the home of digital. And you've... You've done a bit of that too with, um, I guess you've done a podcast on the on AI. Yeah. Um, so are you starting to kind of think and like do you, do you share your thoughts internally on like oh we should you know get on this platform or that platform? Are are you kind of a thought leader in that uh, here being in? I don't need to be here because there's so many smart people um, and and across the I mean Bell is right multiple platforms. These are the folks that I would go to to ask. Um, so I'm very confident that we'll push. The people internally are all pushing in the places we need to push. And if I can just create good content, it will have a great home somewhere. And that's all I, what I really want to do is create good content, learn every day, which is what I've been doing now for 20 years, 23 years as a journalist. Uh, it's such a privilege. Um, and you just, it, it's nice to have a home for that. If I could do it in a closet, I would. If somebody would pay me to do what I do and nobody saw it, that'd be fine with me. But it turns out they won't pay you to do that. <laughs> that's, I guess that's what's great about um, today. I mean, if you even look at this like podcast, like, it's off of you know one machine here that I don't know how to use. Thank God Eugene what, knows how to use it. This studio is the most glamorous studio I've ever been in. <laughs> yeah, this one is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, you have, I guess like you can create content now on a whole yes. variety of scales, um, which is pretty awesome. Well, and what I love about it is you're only going to be heard if you're good. The democratization of content is enormous, right? So you put this podcast out there. If it's boring, nobody will listen to it. Full stop. And there's something kind of beautiful about that. I agree. Well, I'm sure people will listen to it because you are far from boring. And you have an incredible story. And I, I, I really do appreciate you sharing it and sharing some insights. Um, like It's been a, a treat to, to kind of you know, hear about your background, your arc. Um, so thank you so much for I'm for a huge fan here. of yours and of the work you're doing. It's impressive. And by the way, the career changes you've made are pretty impressive. Well, so at one point you. we'll turn the lens around and I'll interview you about that. Deal? Awesome. Deal. Or, or is that not staying in my lane? I was going to say, hopefully I'll stay in my lane. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amanda. Thanks. And there it is. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. A big thank you to Amanda. We really enjoyed having that conversation with her. I hope that you all enjoyed it as much uh, as we did. And a big thank you to all of you as well for subscribing and listening to our podcast. 
here at Capitalize for Kids, we just released our quarter one impact report. Uh, so if you have an interest in learning more about the work that we're taking on with mental health organizations like Kids Help Phone and the George Hall Center, please feel free to visit our website at www.capitalizeforkids.org. The Capitalize for Kids podcast is produced by our very own Eugene Genius McCashew. And I'm your host, Evan Sequera. Our next episode is an interview with Canadian entrepreneur Michael Hyatt, uh, which we are very much looking forward to sharing with you. So please stay tuned and we will catch you in a fortnight. That's all for now.